take this opportunity to wish all of you a happy new year. I hope the previous year was a happy one and that this upcoming year will be happier still. I invite you to turn in the Word of God to Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6 verses 1 through 4. Uh, This portion of Paul's letter to the Ephesians looks at duties within the family. Uh, We saw a few weeks ago the responsibilities of husbands to wives, wives to husbands. This morning we'll consider the duties of children to parents and parents to children. Let's hear God's word together. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we consider this last year, we confess that you have been faithful to us in every way. You have been a good father. You've provided what we need. You've protected us. And even in the midst of life's heartaches, sorrows, and darkness, you have been our rock. And you have seen us through the sorrows, uh, the miseries of life, and brought us through, Lord. Uh, We are confident that as you've been faithful this last year, you will continue to be faithful. You will continue to be our rock. Father, we praise you for your goodness. We confess also that even as you are uniformly and unfailingly faithful, we often are not faithful to you, Lord. We put things other than you at the center of our lives, money, work, pleasure, whatever it is, Lord. We confess this as idolatry, and we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us, cleanse us, and give us grace to worship you above everything else. We pray that you would be our supreme delight, and that there would be no area of our lives that would not be submitted to you. Heavenly Father, as you are a good father, we desire to be good parents to our children. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you would bless your word this morning and use it to challenge us, Uh, help us to grow in areas where we as parents need to grow. We pray that you would use your word to challenge the children in our midst this morning, causing them to live lives that are honoring to you. Uh, Let your word go out and produce the good fruit in our lives that you intend for it to produce, Lord. Bless this proclamation of your word. Strengthen us to be more faithful in our parenting this coming year than even this last year. Amen. As Randy noted, this is the time of year when we look back, we consider what has transpired in the previous year. Uh, We consider what went well and perhaps not so well, how we need to grow. Uh, We make plans. We set goals. And uh, I don't know about you, but if you're parents, a lot of this planning revolves around your kids. What did we do? What should we have done better? What do we need to do better as parents this coming year? My wife and I have been having these conversations last week. Uh, There's something about the conclusion of the year that prompts us to reflect on on, on life. And um, this is a good time of year to start wrestling with these issues. Where, Where do you need to grow as parents? And this text... Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, is ideally suited to help us as we reflect on our responsibilities. We're going to consider the duties of children. Yes, children. Raise your hand if we have any children in our midst this morning. We're under the age of, say, 10. Let's see. Raise your hand. 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. I know there's some of you. You're just shy. There she is. 
There's one. Uh, this text, there we are. Uh, this text addresses you. Uh, we'll consider what it says to you. We'll consider also what it says to teenagers. Are there teenagers here? Let's see, show of hands. Yes. God has a word for you this morning. So let's hear what your responsibilities are to your parents. And parents, let's consider your responsibilities to your children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Children, what does God want for you? He wants you to obey mom and dad, to listen. What does that mean? It means doing what you're told, very simply. When mom says, pick up the toys off of the floor, you go and pick up the toys. When dad says, go to sleep, you go to sleep. When dad says, do your homework, you do your homework. That's what it means to obey. But there's more to obedience than simply doing what you've been told to do. Obedience also means doing what you've been told to do without complaining. You know what I'm talking about. When mom says, go pick up the toys, and you say, why do I always have to pick up the toys? Well, I have to pick up the toys more than they have to pick up the toys, they being your brother or sister. Uh, I'm tired. I don't want to. God wants you to do what mom and dad say with a cheerful heart, a good attitude. Pick up the toys without complaining. Obedience also means that you obey quickly. When mom says pick up the toys, you don't drag your feet. Pick up one very slowly and lethargically, toss it in the bin, and walk over and pick up the next one. Obedience is always prompt obedience, and delayed obedience is disobedience. Obey quickly, and obey completely. When mom says pick up all the toys, pick up all the toys, even the ones that were put there by your brother or sister. Pick even those up, even the ones under the couch that are hard to get to. Obedience means completely doing what your parents have asked of you. And finally, obedience means remembering what your parents have said. Those of you with children know that when you confront them with their failure to obey, why aren't those clothes put back where they should be put back? One response you often get is, I forgot. You told me, but I forgot. There are more important things. Understand that obedience means remembering and holding on to the words of your mom and dad, resolving to remember what they've said to you and obeying. Obedience includes remembering what they've said to you. So saying, I, don't, I forgot, not okay. When mom and dad speak, you listen, you put those words in your heart, and you follow through. That's what it means to obey your parents. So that's the first command to children, obey your parents in the Lord. Second one is honor your father and your mother. Note also mother. Fathers, if your children honor you but not your mother, there's a problem. And they're actually not even honoring you. Uh, both parents, both father and mother, should be honored. Now, what does it mean to honor your father and mother? Well, this is a little bit broader than just obedience. It includes obedience. It includes doing what you're told. Uh, but honoring has to do with your heart, your attitude towards your parents, the way you think about them. God wants you as children to respect your parents. This includes thanking God for them and thanking them for all the things that they do for you. Those delicious meals that you eat day after day, they don't cook themselves, do they? Your mom toils in the kitchen for you because she loves you. And when you eat her cooking, thank her, show appreciation. That comfortable bed you sleep in at night, uh, it's paid for by your father because he gets up early and goes to work and comes home in the evening. 
Remember to appreciate your parents, to thank them for all of their sacrifices, to to thank the Lord for them. Teenagers, how can you uniquely honor your mother and father? Stop with the eye rolling. One basic way that you can honor your father and mother as a teenager is to be ready, to be eager to receive the wisdom that they have to impart to you. Uh, Instead of rolling your eyes, I've heard that before, that's repeated, be eager to receive the wisdom of your mother and father because it is through them that God gives you wisdom for life. When they speak, listen. They've seen more than you have. They've experienced heartaches. They've walked a long time with the Lord. They have things uh, to tell you that you don't understand about yourself or the world. Be eager to listen. As, the, as we're told also in Proverbs 4.20, My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. When mom and dad speak, be ready to listen. Because that's how God gives you wisdom for life. And those of us who are older children and have older parents... We too have responsibilities to our aging parents. And one basic responsibility is to provide for them financially, relationally, in their old age. 1 Timothy 5.4, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. When's the last time you've called your mom and dad or written to them? We, we need to value our parents and honor them even as adult children. We don't have the same obligation, of course, to do everything they've, you know, they say once we have our own families, that kind of thing. But we should still listen to their counsel respectfully, thoughtfully. So we have these two commands to children, obey your parents, honor your father and mother. Uh, that second command, incidentally, is the fifth commandment out of the Ten Commandments. Paul is quoting from the Old Testament here. Uh, but God doesn't just give commands He also gives us motives, reasons to obey. The first reason is we should obey our parents because this pleases the Lord. Obey your parents and the Lord. Paul assumes that these children know Jesus Christ, have a relationship with him, have trusted in him as their savior, and they desire to please Jesus. And pleasing Jesus means obeying their parents. If you're Regardless of whether you're a child or an adult this morning, uh, the central truth of Scripture is that God loved us when we were His enemies, when we were dirty and far from Him, and God sent a Savior, Jesus Christ, into the world. Jesus, through His death and resurrection, makes us clean and washes away all the bad things that we've done. And we are called to trust in Jesus as our Savior. And when we do that, we have a relationship with Him, and it's our desire to please Him. And the fundamental way you please Jesus when you're a child is by listening to mom and dad. So when you listen to mom and dad, you're not just listening to mom and dad, you're listening to Jesus. And to please Jesus, listen to your mother and father. It's important to recognize this because sometimes obedience is hard, isn't it? Sometimes obedience means giving up the thing you want to do, staying up late, for instance. Uh, Sometimes obedience is hard because however good your parents are, they too are not yet perfect. They will be one day, but they're not yet perfect. And sometimes they can lose their temper and speak irritably, and that makes obedience difficult. Uh, But remember, when you obey, you are obeying Jesus, not just your parents. When you recognize that, that gives you the strength to listen, even when it's hard. 
So why should we obey? Because we want to please Jesus. Number two, we should obey because when we obey, we experience the blessings of God. Notice that after the command, honor your father and mother, there's a promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Again, Paul is here quoting the fifth commandment from the Ten Commandments. It's interesting to note that in the original context, uh, the promise is that you'll live long in the land that God is giving you. In other words, the land of Canaan, and that promise is made specifically to the nation of Israel. Here, Paul universalizes that promise and says, even if you're a Gentile, a non-Jew in the city of Ephesus, if you submit to the Lord, if you honor your father and mother, then in whatever land you're in, the blessings of God, the favor of God will rest on you. Now, this is, of course, there are exceptions. There are children who uh, die young, who love the Lord and die young. There are exceptions to this general principle. We recognize that. But as a general rule, those who honor their parents live under the smile of God. As rain falls from heaven and softens the ground and causes everything to be refreshed and to grow, so also the blessings of God fall on those who submit to their parents, who honor their parents. The ball bounces your way, if I can put it that way. When we walk in submission to our parents, we are like that flower in the field that opens its petals to the sun above. Life is full um, and blessed by God. So why should you listen? Because those who listen to their parents experience the blessings of the Lord. It is well with them. Let me add, before transitioning here more directly to the duties of parents, that as parents you have a responsibility to teach your children how to do this, how to obey and how to honor your parental authority. And you do this not fundamentally for your good. It's not fundamentally for your benefit. Uh, you do this because this is what it means for a child to flourish. You want your child to walk in the path of wisdom from the earliest days, and they don't know how to do that by themselves. They have a rebellious heart. And you need to train them how to listen to you, how to submit to authority. Uh, for their good, you ought to expect submission. Children who are not trained to honor father and mother and submit to parental authority grow up and are, exhibit insubordination to teachers, to employers, even to the state, and their life becomes bitter and difficult. Fundamental lesson to learn in childhood is submission to legitimate authority. And you are God's instruments for teaching that to your child. Again, you won't teach it well if you're doing it selfishly. Obey, because I said so. Really, just about you getting some peace and quiet, right? Uh, but you will do it well when your first concern is the well-being of the child and you seek to help them submit to you. That is one of the responsibilities we have. Okay, those are the duties of children. What has God said to parents and uh, fathers specifically here in verse 4? That's, the, that's uh, what children ought to do in their relationship with parents. Here we see the duties of fathers and mothers. And the first duty is a negative duty, something to avoid, something not to do. Do not provoke your children to anger. When you see that a child is consistently frustrated, angry, stifled, exasperated, we're not talking about an occasional temper tantrum when they haven't slept enough. If they're consistently exhibiting rage and anger, it, it's important not to simply gloss over that, but to pause and ask yourself why that's happening. 
It's a really incisive thing that Paul says here. Uh, children who, who are not being parented well, whose parents exhibit selfishness or foolishness in their parenting, uh, will see deep anger and resentment on the part of their children. So if your child is consistently angry, you want to pause and consider why that's the case. Don't look the other way. Now, there could be any number of reasons. It may not be your fault. There could be other factors that contribute to their anger. Uh, but you do want to pause and consider, am I doing something that is exasperating this child? If I was in their shoes and I was being treated the way I'm treating them, would I feel stifled and frustrated and exasperated? And if so, why? So take a moment as you perhaps encounter this in your children, especially if it's a pattern of behavior. You find this frustration in them. Take a moment to consider why that's the case. Is there something that isn't biblical about your parenting that you need to address? Uh, noting anger in uh, children is often an indicator that something's amiss in the household. So we should not provoke our children to anger. There's like a million ways to do this. As I reflected on this, I made a list about all the ways in which one can provoke their children to anger and ways in which I have, in fact, provoked my children to anger. Um, I'll be honest, it was painful. Like, th th there, was, there were pangs of conscience uh, as I considered dumb things that I've done, foolish things that I've done as a father that have irritated, exasperated my children. Um, I had a much longer list than the one I'll give you. But for the sake of time, I'll just, I'll give you five big ones. Five things that we often do to exasperate our children. Let's see. Number one. We criticize often and praise sparingly. We're fault finders. We remind them constantly about, you're not fulfilling your responsibilities here. I can't believe you did that. Who would do that? There's a steady stream of criticism, pointing out their flaws. But rarely do you catch them doing anything good. Hey, well done on that exam. Well done in taking care of your little brother. Well done in putting the toys away. Sparse praise, steady stream of criticism. And we know as adults we couldn't handle that. If we were constantly criticized, if our faults were constantly pointed out, it would crush us. And similarly, we know how life-giving a little bit of encouragement is. Hey, well done. That was great what you did there, what you said there. Yeah, thank you. But if we need that, how much more do children need that? One way to exasperate them is constantly linger over their faults and failures and not give them a word of encouragement. Hey, well done with that. Are you an overly critical parent? Or do you know how to provide steady encouragement to your child? And even when you do criticize or correct, it should be judicious. Not this like, you know, cor correction resulting from frustration and anger. Ah, why do you always do that? You know, be thoughtful the way you'd want other people to be thoughtful in administering correction to you. Be thoughtful in administering correction to your children. Be judicious in what you say and don't say. Number two, we... Uh, frustrate our kids when we ignore what they say because after all, they're just kids. I'll be guilty of this. My kids will tell you, sometimes my mind wanders. Uh, you, you know what I mean? They talk and they talk and then you, you're off somewhere in your world. Uh, that's, that's a failure to love them. That's selfishness. Enter into their little worlds. Be interested in the things that they're interested in. Ask questions. Get to know what's in their heart. A wise parent knows how to ask questions and draw out the heart of their child. 
They know how to listen. Just like it's frustrating to you when you don't feel heard, when somebody else is just waiting to say what they want to say in a conversation and they're just not listening, right? We exasperate our children by not listening to them. One basic way to love them, to not exasperate them, is to listen well, to draw out their heart. Number three, we talk a lot and say little. We talk a lot and say little. This is especially true when we're frustrated. And so we begin this torrent of correction, just a fog of words that envelops them. We repeat ourselves, we ramble, sometimes with a point, sometimes without a point. And even if there is a point, we repeat it so often, it's worn threadbare by frequent repetition. Of course they tune us out. You would too if someone was irate and was just talking at you, not really uh, being entirely coherent. Let our words be few, carefully chosen, and weighty. Few, carefully chosen, and weighty. You don't need to say everything about everything every time you talk to your kids. Stop and think. Say as little as needs to be said, sweetly and effectively. So your kids learn to, when, when mom speaks, when dad speaks, there's a weight to it. By the way, isn't that how you'd approach an adult? If you wanted to correct an adult, what would you do? What, you'd pray about it? Then you would think about what words should I use? So I'm not going to use that word. It has the wrong connotation. I'm going to say it this way. And you would consider what words you could use so that your message could be heard, right? That's generally how we approach people when we correct them. Why don't we extend that same courtesy to kids? Why don't we pause instead of just blurting out the first thing that comes into our minds, prayerfully consider, and then speak few words, but well-chosen words. Proverbs 16, 21 Sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. And part of that sweetness is being terse, saying less. Talking a lot, I suppose, is an occupational hazard for pastors and teachers. It's a good word in season for me. Terseness, say less. I've not mastered that one. I'll get there. Proverbs 16, 24. Gracious words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Fewer words, carefully chosen. Number four, we exasperate kids when we correct them and we are irritated. You know what I mean. It's 9 p.m., the kids are in bed. You're sitting on a chair next to your wife. You've got 30 minutes of peace and quiet carved out. Uh, You're going to sit there and enjoy life. And of course, inevitably, that little silhouette in the hallway comes and says, I can't sleep. And this is the time you're going to correct them. This is when you're going to help them grow in wisdom and Christ-likeness, right? Get back to bed. You're correcting them. You're supposed to. That's what parents do. They correct. You're correcting. Except what's the problem? You're not really correcting. What you're really doing is getting peace and quiet for yourself. It's about you and your desires. And, and so you speak in frustration to that child, and it's not, a, it's not about them at all. You're not aiming at their good. You're aiming at your good. When we correct children, not a drop of irritability. We can speak firmly, yes, but calmly and rationally. When someone's irate and they're trying to correct you, do you listen? No. You close your ears and your heart. You let them talk and you move on, right? Kids are no different. When you're irate, when there's that undercurrent of frustration and smoldering resentment, they're not gonna they're gonna tune you out. And they're gonna learn. If you do that consistently, they're gonna learn to not, not listen to mom and dad speak, because when they speak, it's just a volcano of frustration. 
when you correct a child, make sure that it's not about you and getting your peace and quiet. Make sure it's about them, their interests, and correct them calmly, firmly, without a drop of irritability. Number five, we forget that they're children. We expect them perhaps to know more than they actually know. We forget that they don't have the life experience and the wisdom that we have. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Surprised by Joy, talks about an incident in his life where his father accuses him of arrogance, vanity, putting on airs. Why? Here's what Lewis says. I was on another occasion called affected, vain, putting on airs, that kind of thing, for asking what stirabout was. It is, in fact, a low Irish word for porridge. To certain adults, it seems obvious that he who claims not to know the low must be pretending to be high. Yet the real reason why I asked was that I had never happened to hear the word. So when Lewis says, I don't know what that, I don't know what that word is, his dad goes, oh, that's just arrogant affectation. Assuming the kid did know the word, and he was just pretending to be too sophisticated to use that word. In fact, Lewis didn't know the word. This is a danger for parents. We assume perhaps that they know more than they do. We assume a lot about our kids, and then we go, oh, okay, well, you said this for this reason. Maybe not. Don't forget that they're children. And in addition, don't forget that they require more resources than we do to fulfill their responsibilities in life. Doug Wilson observes, many times parents run a child's day in such a way as to remove all resources from the child and then crack down on the child when their folly manifests itself. For example, it's simply foolish to keep a young child up three hours past bedtime in order to visit with friends and then discipline the child for crabbiness. So you know that they need more rest than you do. You don't give them that rest and they have a meltdown but you're going to hold them accountable. You're going to discipline them. Well, you're forgetting that their needs to be nurtured for rest are greater than yours. And so if you do that, you you exasperate them. We need to remember that we are dealing with children, not adults. And our parenting should reflect that. Now we could go on like this. I cut like half my list that that I was going to include just for the sake of time. There's much more that we could do to harm our kids and exasperate them. But as I reflected on this, it seems to me Uh, that there are two pillars that undergird exasperating behavior. Number one, selfishness. Where kids are basically a nuisance, and, and my goal in parenting is to get them out of the way so I can live the life that I want to. Where there is selfishness, there will be an exasperated children. Where it's about me, we will frustrate our kids. Uh, Parenting, wise biblical parenting, requires self-denial. Out of love for Jesus and our children, we say, Lord, whatever sacrifices I have to make, If my 9 p.m. conversation with my wife needs to be interrupted, Lord, so be it. I yield to you. Faithful uh, parenting requires self-surrender. And secondly, it requires wisdom. You have to parent God's ways. Or God's way, I should say. There are parents who are selfless enough. They put the needs of their children first. But they're not wise. They pursue unbiblical goals. And the result is you can have a family that's focused on the child and the parents are doing everything for the child, but it's dysfunctional. And it's not a lack of selflessness, it's a lack of wisdom in what's best for the child. So you need both wisdom and selflessness to raise godly children. Uh, Ted Tripp captures it well when he writes, parenting is your primary calling. Parenting will mean that you can't do all the things that you could otherwise do. It will affect your golf handicap. It may mean your home does not look like a picture from Better Homes and Gardens. 
It will impact your career and ascent on the corporate ladder. It will influence the kind of ministry you're able to pursue. It will modify the amount of time you have for bowling, hunting, television, or how many books you read. It will mean that you can't develop every interest that comes along. The costs are high. Parenting requires a lot out of us in terms of time and energy. And to be faithful to Jesus, we have to be willing to say no to other things so that we can say yes to the high calling of parenting. It's well worth taking time. I've given you five big things that I think we do to exasperate kids, but it's a fruitful exercise I've discovered to sit down and maybe with your wife or husband can reflect at length about some of the things that you do to anger your kids and whether those things might be sinful and consider how you might repent of them. So responsibilities of parents, here's what you shouldn't do. You shouldn't anger and exasperate your kids. Here positively is what you should do. Should not do, should do. So what should you do? Bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. Now that word discipline uh, is too narrow, a translation for the underlying Greek word. Um, It would be better to translate that word as training, training. Uh, You see this use, for instance, in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training, same word, in righteousness. When we read discipline, we think very narrowly about correcting bad behavior. But the word training is more comprehensive, and that better captures the underlying word. The idea is that you are forming the whole person, their thinking, their heart, their loves, uh, their choices. You are forming a whole person through your instruction, through your guidance, through your discipline, through your correction. You are inducting them into a certain way of life that reflects the wisdom of God. So you are engaged in the work of forming an immortal soul, training them to walk in God's ways. That's what that word is getting at. The next word, uh, bringing them up in the discipline and then instruction of the Lord. Instruction is, is... Helpful as far as it goes, but it misses the nuance of warning, admonishing, uh, telling kids not to go in that direction. So that same word is used in Titus 3.10 in this way. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him. The the word warning is the same word as used in this passage. And it has the idea of telling that child, hey, if you go down this path, you'll hurt yourself. Put your hand on the stove, you'll burn yourself. Go to the forbidden woman. And you'll burn yourself that way. There there is a readiness to point out to kids, this is the path of life, this is the path of death. This is what honors God, this is what is contrary to his will. So to, to raise godly children then, we need to comprehensively form them, their thinking, their loves to reflect the will of God, and we need to warn and correct them. Now we could spend probably several Sundays talking about how exactly to do this, Oh, we did a series several years ago. We may still have, have it somewhere in the archives. Yeah, Randy says yes, so that, that's a good sign. Uh, that, you know, where we talked at some length about this. There are many good books that you can look at that detail how it, we can form children. I want to give you some high-level principles today that you can just reflect on and then fill in in more detail as you, as you reflect on them. I'll give you seven, but they'll be quick-fire principles, so don't lose heart. Number one, this is something obvious, but I think frequently overlooked. To form godly children, 
we need to be more thoughtful and reflective than we often are. Like we save our best thinking for work, other demands of life, but we rarely stop and consider, how's my kid doing? How am I parenting? What goals do we have? One way to become better parents, an important way to become better parents, is to stop and reflect more. Are we following godly principles? Why is my child acting that way? We need to think more with our spouses than we perhaps do about what's going on. A lot of times we're tired, we don't have time to think about one more thing in our busy lives, and so we just do a knee-jerk reaction. Just stop that, go, you know, go be nice. You know? uh, we, but we need to pause and consider. When you build a house, you, you think, right, before you lay the foundation. What's, what kind of land is this? How do we do it? What kind of rooms do we need? What are our needs? We need to plan the house accordingly. It requires thoughtfulness. Your work requires thoughtfulness. L- learning to program, learning to negotiate. You have to think, reflect, grow in wisdom and understanding. Well, how much more does the formation of immortal souls require thought? Most of us are not sufficiently reflective. Think, think about three things. I found this helpful. This is from John Frame, by the way, Doctrine of the Christian Life. He uses these principles more generally to think about uh, Christian ethics, but I think they apply well to parenting. First perspective on parenting is the normative perspective. What are the relevant principles of Scripture? What does God say about parenting? What should my goals be? And are we, in fact, following those goals? What is God's will for our family and for the kids? Right? Those are the norms. And then we need to consider the situational perspective. What are the circumstances in my child's life? Who are their teachers? What are they learning? Who are their friends? Are they getting enough sleep? Are they getting enough exercise, nutrition? How do they relate to their siblings? We need to know the basic facts in our child's life and take those into account. And finally, we need what uh, Frame describes as the existential perspective. What do they love? What do they hate? What are their character strengths, character weaknesses? Who are they? Where, what's the state of their heart? To parent well, we need to be constantly looking at these three variables. What's God's word say? What's the situation? Where's my kid? And we need to just be prayerfully considering these variables, adjusting Parenting is more of an art than a science. There's no like formula we can give you and, and it'll go well. You just need to be a, a reflective, thoughtful parent. Uh, and I don't see any substitute for this. Just as many other things, the best things in life require thought, so does parenting. So it's the start of the year. This is a good time for remedying faults, setting new goals. Uh, maybe you can decide that you're going to read a book on parenting with your wife or husband. And let me say, read a good book. There's a lot of garbage Terrible worldly principles of parenting. They'll mess up your kid. Read one I'd recommend, Ted Tripp's book, Shepherding a Child's Heart. If you don't like that one, there are several others I could recommend. Read good books, though. Read it together. Talk about what's happening in your family in light of what you're learning from Scripture. Talk to uh, older mothers and fathers who have done it, whose kids are grown up, doing well. Sit down with them over coffee. Ask them, what have you done? Learn from them. Observe your kids. Study them. Watch them. Watch how they relate to their siblings. Be like Sherlock. Make deductions and observations about your kids and, and learn how you need to adapt to their unique needs. All of us, I suspect, need to grow in the area of thoughtfulness in our parenting. Number two, these will get progressively shorter, so take heart. Um, we often focus on behavior and forget the heart. We often focus on behavior and forget the heart. Why? Because behavior is annoying. It gets in, our, in the way of our plans. And so, okay, okay, you did that. Now you're in trouble. 
Okay, go to your room. And there is a place for consequences and discipline, uh, but if you're just focusing on behavioral correction, you're not dealing with the root of the matter. If you're neglecting the heart, there are several problems. Number one, you're raising Pharisees. They might outwardly conform and do what you want, but their heart is far from God. Number two, if you're not focusing on the heart, on the inner springs of the outward action, then you're actually not helping your, your kid to see the depth of their sinfulness. They just see their behavior and it's wrong, but they don't see that their pollution goes all the way down. So what Jesus says, Mark 7, 21 through 23, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. A lot of dirt in there. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So if you don't help a kid connect the dots between what's going on in their heart and what they're doing outwardly, you're, you're not allowing them to see the depth of their sin and therefore the depth of God's grace in Jesus. They don't see their need for a savior as they should because they're focused only on behavior and not also the underlying heart attitude. And third, by not focusing on the heart, you're not teaching them how to work on their heart. This is what you do as a, as a follower of Jesus, don't you? You have uh, negative emotions that pull you in a certain direction, and so what do you do? You talk to yourself. You apply the gospel to your heart. You say, Lord, I shouldn't be thinking this way. Forgive me. Help me. Right? You address the heart constantly. Uh, if you don't address their heart, you're not teaching them to develop that important skill in walking with the Lord. So let me give you an example of what I mean. There's a ball sitting in the middle of the room. No one has touched that ball for hours. And then a little boy walks up and picks up the ball and starts to play with it. And a second later, his brother sees it and says, I want the ball. It's my ball. Could have played with it at any point prior to that moment, but when he sees his brother happily, cheerfully playing with the ball, he decides, this is, I need the ball. Okay, What's going on? Well, okay, you take them aside and you explain to the interferer, hey, look, there's principles of justice and fairness that we have to observe. Okay? But if you only deal with the problem at that level, you're only dealing with the surface problem. The bottom line is he resents the happiness of his brother. He's jealous. He wants to take it for himself. And we, we, need to we need to expose that fact to that child and say, hey, instead of loving your brother and being happy when he is happy with his toy, it upsets you when he's happy. You want to take his happiness away and you want to take the ball. Right? That shows you don't love your brother. That shows there's jealousy. And the only way we can stop doing that is by being happy in Jesus. When we're happy in Jesus, we can be happy for other people. We don't resent their happiness. But notice what you're doing. You're, you're dealing with the heart, not just outward behavior, and you're applying the gospel to it. You're saying, here's how the truth about Jesus affects not just behavior, but, but the heart as well. I admit it's difficult to do. We're weary. We're busy. It's hard to take the time to do that. It's hard to take the time to do that well without like suffocating kids. But we need to do it. Number three. I say this often, so I won't linger too long. Scripture, 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 scripture. The Christian home should be one in which the child is enveloped, saturated in the Bible. There's constant informal conversation about Scripture, but there is also a plan to formally work through the Bible. If you don't have a plan, that's a problem. It probably means it's not happening. Psalm 78, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should hope, set their hope in God and not forget 
the works of God, but keep his commandments. How are children going to put their trust in the Lord? By being taught about the great works of the Lord from Scripture by their parents. You need a plan for instructing your children in the Word of God. If, if there isn't some sort of plan, if there isn't intentionality, it's probably not happening. Uh, this needs to happen yesterday. This is the beginning of the year. This is the time for setting goals. Uh, if you are not currently working through Scripture with your kids, that needs to change now. And if you say, well, I don't really know the Bible that well, that's okay. There are many tremendous resources that exist right now that are easy to use. You literally just read it, ask some questions, and then you even get the answer. Right? It doesn't take a lot of work to do this. I can recommend some of these resources. The other elders can recommend some of these resources. Um, but there is no excuse. You need to saturate your child in the Word of God. Teach them uh, the truth of God with a focus on Jesus Christ, how every page of Scripture witnesses to Him. Do you have a plan? Is there some formal instruction happening in your household? I'm a big believer and advocate for family worship, uh, taking a little bit of time in the evening to read scripture with your family or read some resource that's, you know, paraphrases scripture, uh, pray together and encourage each other. Is there something like that happening? If not, it should. Number four, in terms of this work of forming uh, our children, we need to form their character. Expose them to, to scripture, we need to form their character. Uh, young boys won't learn to work hard on their own. They will drift towards laziness. They have, to, they have to be taught how to work diligently. You have to push them. You have to develop a work ethic in them. You have to teach them how to be thoughtful. When mom comes in with the grocery bags from the store and the little boy sits on the couch and keeps watching TV, but he sees his mom struggling and doesn't do anything, he's thoughtless. And so what you need to say is, no, when, when mom comes in, this is not how we react. We go and help her with the bags. What are you doing? Forming that child's character. You're teaching them uh, to be considerate of others. So parenting has to take into account the, the character of the child, where they're weak, where they're strong, and then act, takes active steps to help them grow. Teach them wisdom. Teach them all about the big issues of life, money, how to use it, how to get it, how to be wise. Uh, fathers, if your uh, sons are at a certain age, talk to them about sexual purity, what it looks like. Hold them accountable. Ask them questions. Teach them God's design for human sexuality. Teach them what to look for in a spouse, in a wife, in a husband. Sixth, model kingdom priorities. If you love comfort, ease, and pleasure, and your aim in life is to be comfortable and make money, your kids will grow up and do the same thing. At best, Jesus will be on the periphery of their life and comfort, ease, and pleasure will be at the center. If you want them to live radically for Jesus Christ, model that. Model kingdom priorities. Invite people who don't know Jesus into your home and seek to share the gospel with them. Serve at church. Give generously. Uh, lay your life down for the advancement of Christ's cause and don't live a life that's all about you. If you want uh, children who are sold out following Jesus, model that. Show them what radical Christian living looks like. And finally, last thing I'll say here, and this is important, trust the Lord, not techniques. At the end of the day, we want our parenting to reflect the wisdom of Scripture. We want to do the best that we can for our children. But it is idolatry and wickedness to ever put our confidence in those techniques and in ourselves rather than Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can save. And so however we parent, 
uh, we need to parent with the fundamental confidence, not in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Psalm 127.1. If Jesus doesn't bless our efforts, he'll achieve nothing. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. In all of our parenting, the baseline confidence needs to be in Jesus, not in what we're doing. And this keeps you from being stifling to your kids. If you feel like you need to be the one who saves them, and you take the place of Jesus, you're going to be heavy-handed. No, 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 you can't do that. It's dangerous. Uh, You're going to be heavy-handed in your correction of them. But when you are confident in Christ, that enables you to hold things loosely and parent wisely. He saved you. He can save your children. We need to put our trust in him. And we need to recognize that we all have a responsibility to help each other. Obviously, the fundamental responsibility is for parents, uh, for their own children. Uh, But we need to pray for one another in this regard. Maybe you're at a stage of life where your children are grown. Help those who are new parents. Pray for them. Encourage them. Uh, Let's spur one another on towards greater faithfulness in this area this coming year. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we want to love you better and we want to parent better. And we pray that the wisdom of your word and the work of your spirit would help us to do that. Father, if there are areas, and I'm certain that all of us who have kids, there are areas to grow, uh, we pray that you'd help us to do that. Uh, We pray that you'd help us to repent of those things we need to repent of and cultivate habits and rhythms that are more faithful. Bless every household here. Uh, Grant that we would see our children walking in the light and holding firm to Christ even when they leave home and go on to college, Lord. We pray that our children will continue walking in the light. Amen.